Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Thank you, Scott, and your team for leading us in worship this morning. Jan and I went up north to our daughter's cottage from Monday to Thursday, arriving home Thursday evening, thinking I had some things lined up for Friday. And Friday morning, Caleb called, and he's all congested and can hardly speak, uh, apologetically asking if I would fill in for him. Well, when you're in that situation, then you have to think, of what will I do? Caleb has... Uh, completed most of his preparation for the message today, so um, we'll leave that uh, chapter for him hopefully next week. And it occurred to me that I prepared a message uh, maybe over a year ago, uh, which I have not yet preached, uh, which I think will fit well with our current series in Genesis as it relates to Joseph's life in which he experienced, as we have already seen in this series, favoritism by his father, followed by rejection by his brothers, rejection followed by uh, elevation in Potiphar's household, and elevation followed by condemnation in prison, and condemnation followed by exaltation as the ruler of the land of Egypt, as we saw last week. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, how Joseph could have uh, withstood such devastating effects in this uh, roller coaster ride uh, throughout his life so far. Well, not every servant of God does as well as Joseph, and we're going to notice that this morning in the title of our message is When Courage Leads to Fear, found in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you'd turn there, with me, First Kings chapter 19, we'll read the chapter uh, together. Our subject then is discouragements after victories, discouragements after victories in First Kings chapter 19. Sorry, I didn't look it up, the, the uh, page number in the blue Bible. Uh, somebody can help you. 301, thank you. 1 Kings then, chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. 
The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And to the one who, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together before we continue. Lord God, we're so grateful to be gathered here this morning as your people in congregation to raise our hearts unitedly to you in songs of praise, to pray together, to read the scriptures together. And now, as we come to this passage, we pray that you will bring before us things that are good for us, from which we can learn and be changed to be more like you. I pray that as a result of this message this morning, we will be strengthened in our faith and go from this place rejoicing in you despite any setbacks, despite failures, despite disappointments and discouragement. May we find in you and in your infallible word the words of comfort that we need for our lives right now. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the overall lesson that we learn from this story of, in Elijah's life is that when you are discouraged, take heart. God is not finished with you, and he will prevail. When you are discouraged, take heart. God is not finished with you, and he will prevail. Now, to understand the full impact of our passage, we need to review the background of Elijah's five um, miraculous experiences with God that took place in chapters 17 and 18. Five 
miraculous experiences with God. First, the miracle of the drought in chapter 17, 1 to 7. Elijah advises Ahab that there will be a drought, no rain or dew, except by his, that is Elijah's, command. Then the word of the Lord instructs him to go to the brook Cherith, where by God's provision he drank from the brook and he was fed by the ravens morning and evening. Until, it says in verse 7, eventually the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Secondly, the miracle of the widow's flour and oil. When the brook dried up, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, telling him to go to Zarephath, where God had commanded a widow there to feed him. And sure enough, when he came to the entrance to the city, a widow was there gathering sticks, and Elijah instructs her to bring him a little water in a cup so that he could drink, and to bring him a piece of bread to eat. Now understand that in the middle of a drought, this was an outrageous demand. No wonder the widow answered that she had nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And right at that moment, she says that she was gathering a couple of sticks for her to prepare the last meal for her and her son so that we may eat it and die. It was a pitiful situation. And we've seen ourselves the devastating effects of droughts on the people of Africa. And through your generosity and the generosity of God's people here in Canada, our center at at Gampella in Burkina Faso has had the privilege of distributing food to them in their hour of desperate need. And when all hope was lost, families who were literally starving to death were fed. We have heard their heartfelt expressions of thanksgiving for the relief that was provided. And now here, Elijah assures this woman. He says, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, he says, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For the Lord, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. These words evidently infused her with great courage because she went and did as Elijah said. And as a result, just as Elijah had promised, she and Elijah and her household ate, it says, for many days. And listen to the final remark about this miraculous event in verse 16 of chapter 17. The jar of flour did not become empty, neither did the jug of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The third miracle was the miracle of resurrection life in verses 17 to 24 of chapter 17. The widow's son becomes ill and can't breathe. And that tragedy ignites in her memory some sort of guilt of something that had happened in the past in her life, For she mistakenly accuses Elijah of causing this to happen to her. And so quickly she has forgotten the miracle of the flour and the oil. 
But Elijah has not forgotten God's miraculous power. For as he lays the boy on his bed, he cries to the Lord and he says, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity on the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? And the Lord hears Elijah's cry. And the life of the child came into him again and he lived. Elijah delivers the boy back to his mother, and the woman says, Now I know you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The fourth miracle was the miracle of fire at Mount Carmel, and you'll remember the story probably, that three years after the drought began, God tells Elijah to meet with Ahab, king of Israel. While no reason is given for the meeting, uh, for the, meeting the outcome makes it clear that its purpose is to prove that the God of Israel is the one true, all-powerful God and that the prophets of Jezebel and Ahab are false and powerless. And so Elijah gathers all the people and the false prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and he challenges them saying, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, this is chapter 18, verse 21, if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. Two bulls are brought, one for the prophets of Baal and one for Elijah. Each is to offer a sacrifice without setting light to it, and the God who answers with fire, he is God. The prophets of Baal go first, and the outcome, of course, is predictable. Despite their pleas to Baal, There is no response, no sound. Before Elijah offers his sacrifice, he adds insult to injury, if you will, by digging a trench around it, drenching the sacrifice three times with water. And then Elijah called on God to let it be known that this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And the people fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The fifth miracle was the return of rain as Elijah had predicted. After having all the prophets of Baal slaughtered, Elijah And uh, told Ahab to go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. This is chapter 18 now, verse 41. Just as he had predicted in verse 1 of chapter 17. And sure enough, a little cloud, like a man's hand, rose from the sea. And in a little while the heavens grew dark with clouds and wind. And there was a great downpour of rain. Now all of that background, I think is necessary for us to understand properly what happens next because after all of these evidences of God's power, after all of these instances of miraculous victories, in a moment, Elijah's life falls apart. From this history, we learn that even, a, for, a, even for devoted servants of God, this is our first theological principle, if you will, that discouragement can easily set in right after great victories. Discouragement can easily set in right after great victories. This is verses 1 to 8 of our chapter. 
When Ahab arrives at their palace in Jezreel, he tells Jezebel, his wicked wife, all that Elijah had done at Mount Carmel. When she hears of the resounding defeat of her prophets, she is evidently thoroughly humiliated and, and enraged. And in her demonic, um, demonically motivated anger, she vows to kill Elijah within 24 hours in retaliation for his killing her prophets. Then listen to what it says. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now doesn't it seem odd to you? Doesn't this reaction strike you as odd? How could a man who had just had five experiences of divine power that we just reviewed ever be overcome with fear? Wouldn't you think that such evidences of God's power in him would have given Elijah the courage to withstand any opposition? But no. Without any consultation with God, the threat of death fills Elijah with abject fear. Instead of responding in the power of God, he responds in human weakness. Instead of expressing confidence in God's deliverance, he expresses utter helplessness in his own abilities. And so in chapters 17 and 18, Elijah is on top of the world, God's agent, if you will, for miraculous acts of power. But in chapter 19, he is scared to death of a woman's threat. One minute he's giving new life to a dead boy. The next minute he's afraid of dying himself. In one step, one fell swoop, he has gone from the pinnacle of spiritual success to the depths of human hopelessness. Someone else has said that the same man who once stood on the mountaintop of victory now lies in the valley of defeat. Now we're not told why Elijah ran for his life. Perhaps it was fatigue from all his activities, facing one drama after another. Whatever the reason, it seems that he gives up. But before we're too quick to criticize Elijah, let's consider our own experiences. Have you not reacted just the same way as Elijah? Oh, you probably haven't caused fire to come down out of heaven, but you've probably been filled with spiritual joy one moment, only to be utterly discouraged by adverse circumstances the next. Isn't this what we so often experience in life? Mountaintops of joy followed by the depths of sadness. Courage followed by fear. Victories followed by defeats. Answers followed by doubts. Successes followed by failures. Energy for God followed by exhaustion. Our difficulty is to remain steady, to remain constant throughout. Trusting God in all circumstances to keep us and guide us through even the most difficult of experiences. Now, I'm not making light of real experiences and human emotions and diverse reactions. They're very real. But what I think we need to learn from Elijah's experience is that Satan can so easily trip us up into thinking that it's over. Our life is no good anymore. We have nothing to offer to God. 
And so as we pursue this story of Elijah, the question that unifies and drives along the rest of Elijah's story is this, what will God do now? As we shall see, God acts toward him as he has all along, refreshing him with physical, physically with food and renewing him spiritually with a fresh call on his life. And so leaving his servant at Beersheba, Elijah goes a day's journey further into the wilderness where he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. He said to God, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's or my ancestors. Notice that Elijah does not consider taking his own life, but he is so discouraged that he wants God to take his life away. The Christian life and ministry can do that to you. It can be so exhilarating when you see God at work in your successes, and yet so deflating when things go wrong. Notice that the Lord intervenes in good times and in bad times. An angel of the Lord tells him to get up and eat. Looking around, he sees a loaf of bread baked on hot cold, hot stones and a jar of water. Well, where did that come from? This was miraculous. It just appeared out of nowhere. Kind of like the food that the ravens brought to him at the brook and the fire that came down out of heaven. And this happened a second time. And again he ate and drank. And so with renewed physical strength, he walks 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, that is to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, over 150 miles south, where he enters a cave and spends the night there. So far then, in these first eight verses, we have learned that discouragement can so easily set in right after great victories. Notice, secondly, God never abandons us, even in our weakest moments. God never abandons us, even in our weakest moments, verses 9 to 18. Once more, the word of the Lord comes to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? The greatest comfort that we can ever have in times of distress is a word from the Lord. Listen to these scriptures, Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Here then, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's remarkable what a simple question can bring out. I think of Jesus' two questions to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that you will remember. He said, first of all, what is this dispute that you're having with each other? And they said, don't you know the things that have happened in Jerusalem? And Jesus asked a second question, what things? It's kind of a funny question, right? If you think about it, he knew exactly what had happened in Jerusalem. After all, he was the center of it all. What things? So wisely chosen questions can elicit answers that reveal what's going on in the heart. In fact, they unburden the heart. 
And Elijah answers the Lord here, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he answers in the self-defense of a martyr. He says, firstly, he emphasizes his zeal for God. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Secondly, he says, he compares his commitment to God to that of others. He says, look at everyone else. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, in verse 10, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. The implication is, but not me. I've been faithful and steady. And thirdly, he stresses his isolation and suffering for God. I alone am left, and they, that is Jezebel and her armies, seek my life to take it away. This is truly a poor me speech. Elijah is thoroughly despondent. Now, despondency can certainly color our view of life. Despondency ignores the positive and emphasizes the negative. That's when we ignore the fire at Carmel, we ignore the drought, we ignore the abundant supply of bread and water, we ignore the resurrection of a dead boy, we ignore the return of rain. It's completely obliterated from our memory, and in a state of despondency, the world looks cruel and a dark place. We feel so terribly alone. But again, before we're too quick to criticize Elijah... Let's remember that it, is often, that, that it is often right after great victories that God's people experience isolation and loneliness. The feeling that God is finished with us. That the days of great demonstrations of God's power and evidence of success in our lives is over. Let's also remember that leadership itself can be lonely. After all, you have no one to turn to. You are it. You have to provide your followers with direction and with resources and with encouragement. And who is there to do that for you? Often no one except, of course, the Lord himself. Perhaps that's the point here. Don't depend on yourself but on God. Don't let feelings drag you down but let dependence pull you up. In times of despondency, God steps in and redirects our focus. And thus God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And at that moment, the Lord passed by. This is truly the antidote to the martyr complex, the Lord's presence. This is what we need, you see, to jolt us out of our self-pity and our claims of faithfulness. This is what we need to remind us, that we are not alone in this battle. We're not the only one left who is faithful to God. Notice, at that moment, the Lord passed by. Like Moses on Mount Sinai, what Elijah is about to experience is what we call a theophany, the visible manifestation of God. Firstly, a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. This is God, you see, in all of his power and glory. Yes, this is the God we want. This is the God we expect. This is the experience we need. The God who can shatter mountains with the wind. This is the God we want to empower us for his service. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. That's strange, isn't it? I thought that's exactly where God was. After the wind, there was an earthquake. Oh, now we say, yes, this is more like it. Spectacular upheavals by the God of creation that no one can withstand. That's the God we think we deserve on our side. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. That's strange, isn't it? I thought that's how God reveals himself. After the earthquake... There was a fire. That's it, fire. The fire that came down on Mount Carmel that consumed Elijah's, uh, at Elijah's word, a water-soaked sacrifice. That's where God is. That's how God acts. The God who sends down fire out of heaven. But the Lord was not in the fire. And so by this time, our minds begin to question, where is God? when I need him. Why is he so absolutely silent? What's he doing? Why has he abandoned me? I think what God wants us to learn here is that God does not always manifest himself in miraculous ways. God does not always manifest himself in miraculous ways like wind and earthquake or fire, like food from ravens or raising dead boys to life. Elijah had experienced God's power over nature and God's power in the spectacular miracle of fire from heaven, but he does not experience that here. What he needs now is not a demonstration of God's power, but the comfort of God's voice. A word from the Lord. After the fire, there was the sound of a low whisper. Really? A soft whisper? That's it? Yes. Like Elijah, we have to understand that God does not always or only speak and act in spectacularly powerful ways. He does not always work in ways that take your breath away. We do not see God only in awe-inspiring events. No, God draws near to us and comforts us and encourages us and directs us often in a still, small voice. Still because it's not like rushing wind. Small because it's not hugely impacting like an earthquake. A whisper because it's not like fire that crackles and roars. A quiet whisper was all Elijah needed when he was discouraged and isolated. God knew that at this time, Elijah needed comfort. Elijah needed grace. Elijah needed healing. Not awe-inspiring acts of power. God does not always respond to our sense of injustice or unfairness by eliminating our enemies. God has his ways, and we cannot question them. He doesn't always react as we would like. 
as Kevin prayed earlier. He does not always wreak vengeance on our enemies. Like Elijah, we need to be reminded that God is in control. He knows all about our circumstances. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, when God speaks quietly to us, do we hear him? Elijah needed to be reassured that the God of Mount Carmel, the God of rain and wind and fire and earthquake, would deliver him from Jezebel, just as he delivered him from Ahab and the prophets of Baal. And what he hears is that God still has great things in store for Elijah to accomplish in his life. Elijah may have given up on his own usefulness, And he may have given up on God, but God has not given up on him. When Elijah heard the still, small voice of God, he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and once again he heard a voice asking the same question as before, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 13. You see, when the same question is asked twice, it shows that the question is not only important, But in this case, it shows that Elijah had not given the right answer the first time. The question God is asking is, what is going on inside you, Elijah, that has caused you to flee to this place, to be in such despair of your life, to be so afraid? What Elijah needed to know is that God has not changed. God has not changed. The same God who fed him before at the brook has fed him now. That's God's care. The same God who spoke before is speaking now. That's God's comfort and direction. God hasn't changed. To be perfectly frank, the right answer that Elijah should have given was, I'm not doing anything. Just hiding here in a cave to escape Jezebel. That was the right answer. But no, he repeated the same self-defense as in verse 10. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. That's true. All the rest have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets. That is not true. I'm the only one left who is faithful to you. That is not true. And they're seeking to kill me. That is true. So thus far, Elijah's thinking has not changed. His emotional state has not improved. His trust in God has not strengthened. Despair and loneliness, you see, are very real emotions. Even the apostle Paul struggled with them. And for good reason, he says in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians and verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Despaired of life. Five times, he says in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, I received 40 lashes, less one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day uh, adrift at sea. And so on and so on and so on. He had seen his share of discouragements and disappointments and failures. 
And in times of despair and weariness and isolation, we so often fail to remember the great things that God has done in us and through us. We forget all of the manifold blessings that God has showered upon us, our freedom, our prosperity, and our peace, and all of the other things that we enjoy under the good hand of God. But here's Paul's attitude, as we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 1, he said, we do not lose heart. In verse 16, he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer person is wasting away, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. But the things which are unseen are eternal. God's solution for Elijah's despair is to reactivate him. He says to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. God is saying to Elijah, go back, Elijah. Reverse course. Take your task up again. It's not over yet. I've got fresh activity for you to do. You're still useful to me. And God gave him a brand new work. He said to Elijah, you're going to go back and anoint Haziel, king of Syria. You're going to go back and anoint Jehu to succeed Ahab as king over Israel. And you're going to anoint Elisha as your own replacement. And God is saying this, as for these people who have threatened your life and who are opposed to me, Know this, Elijah, after you're gone, and Elisha is the prophet in your place, my judgment will come on them. And that's exactly what, what happened in 2 Kings chapter 8. Jehu would be God's instrument to destroy the house of Ahab and the Baal worshippers in the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jezebel and her wicked prophets would not prevail. And so God assures Elijah, that he is sovereign. He will execute judgment on the wicked in his own time. In the meantime, Elijah, God says, occupy yourself with the work I've given you. Elijah's focus now turns from himself to God. He needs to be busy Serving the Lord instead of feeling sorry for himself. And oh, by the way, Elijah, God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Contrary to what Elijah had said, he is not the only one who is faithful to God. God will always have a witness to himself. He is sovereign, not Baal, and not Jezebel. Now I say again, I'm not in any way downplaying the significance or the seriousness of discouragement. I've been there. You've probably been there. But one thing I know is that being busy for God is a wonderful antidote to discouragement. If we're idle, discouragement just feeds on itself. And remember, fear can easily follow courage. Discouragement often follows victories. That's the moment when Satan swoops in for the attack. He knows when we're vulnerable. 
He knows when we are the weakest. And that's when he seeks to rob us of the joy of our salvation. Seeks to rob us of our relationship with God. Rob us of our love for his people. Well, in those times, remember, our thesis, our summary, if you will, the sermon in a sentence. When you're discouraged, take heart. God is not finished with you. And he will prevail. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these few and feeble words springing from this wonderful text teaching us that in all circumstances, at all times, you are sovereign, you are in control, and we need to be faithful to you to listen to your voice, to read your infallible word, to stake our future on it, and to trust you for all that's to come. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.